Greetings and salutations. I'm Vlad Tenev, CEO and co-founder of Robinhood, and this is Under the Hood. The funny thing about money is that it's actually got multiple definitions. It's actually hard to define, say, in the U.S. economy, what is money. And so on one hand, you have base money, which is basically the combination of physical currency in circulation and bank reserves, which is basically the commercial banking system has on deposit with the central bank. Then you have broad money. It also includes currency in circulation, but then includes people's checking accounts and savings accounts and other cash equivalents. In this episode, we speak with Lynn Alden, the founder of Lynn Alden Investment Strategy. In addition to her investment strategy work, Lynn is very active on social media and an accomplished blogger speaking on a variety of topics, including cryptocurrency, the macroeconomic climate, inflation, and the US petrodollar financial system. After experiencing homelessness as a child, Lynn knew that financial wellness was important. And by the time she was a teenager, she'd started devising strategies to reach and maintain financial solvency. Today, Lynn applies an engineering background and more than 15 years of investment research experience to provide information to new and experienced investors alike. I'm looking forward to chatting with her about her path to financial stability and independence and what beginners and experts should know about growing their wealth. I grew up initially around the Pennsylvania area and then also in Florida. And so basically, I mean, that worked out. It's a classic. The family was divorced and there were all sorts of issues. There were substance abuse issues and things like that. And so that led to basically different degrees of poverty. And so when I lived with my mother, basically we're moving around to different homeless shelters and eventually lived in a car for a while. And so that was just, you know, kind of a challenging period. But then eventually I moved back to live with my father who was, he was living in a trailer park, but he had a stable income, basically a more normal environment in many ways. So then I primarily grew up with him after that point. And so it was that early kind of interesting period that added a lot of color to, I guess, probably how it affected my long-term outlook. Were you an only child? In a way, I was the only child of them. My father had a previous family, so I have a bunch of half-siblings that are technically old enough to be my parents. Yeah, yeah. I'm an only child as well. So when did you start thinking about wealth and finance? You're this big macro analyst now online. How did that start? Yeah, so initially, you know, when I found some degree of stability after that ordeal, for whatever reason, I had this strong savings you know, approach. I would basically save any gifts I get, cash gifts I get for birthdays and Christmas and things like that. And then in the late 90s, when I was maybe 10, I had a coin collection because I had an uncle that he had this box of like foreign coins. And they're all the cheap kind, but it's just when you're a kid, that's super interesting. And so I started collecting these cheap coins and then I moved up into gold and silver coins. I had cash, I had gold and silver coins, I had coin collection. So you know, I had this kind of interest in investing, compounding growth over time. When I became a teenager, I often watched financial media. I was always interested in the economic things. I was like that weird 12 year old that could tell you like what the Nikkei average was at the current time. And so I started just reading online about investing, reading about back then, I was reading about Warren Buffett, kind of value investing approaches. And so I started to invest in equities when I was a teenager. And so that kind of started that journey. And so for a while, I was focused on that combo of equities and precious metals. But then, of course, as it went longer, I got more interested in macro, more interested in other asset classes as well. Interesting. So your first investment was actually you were buying coins, you were invested in fiat currency, right? Yeah. I mean, well, the initial thing was fiat and gold coins. And then my first stock was Adobe. Yeah, cool. Yeah, that's interesting because uh, I was wondering why everyone's talking about 
crypto stocks. To some degree, you're one of the only people talking about the US dollar and all of these macro trends. So it really is reflective of where you started, it seemed. Yeah, and it's one of those things where, you know, the way I've described it is over the past decade, I've been very focused on the equity market. But it's one of those decades where there's so much macro heavy things happening, right? So we had the global financial crisis, then we had a coming out of that, the big response, different, you can look at, say, currency markets, because that plays a big role in why, say, emerging markets do very well or very poor in a decade, because they're very tied to the strength of the dollar. We can also look at these big trends. And of course, as we entered 2020, we had a huge pandemic shutdown, and then the massive fiscal response. And so if someone's investing in equities but not paying attention to the broader macro space, it's very hard to know what types of sectors or what types of companies are likely to do well. Yeah. You were trained as an engineer. You studied engineering in college. Is that right? Yeah. I initially went into engineering, electrical engineering. Then I worked as an engineer. And then I got a master's in engineering management that focused on financial modeling, engineering economics, things like that. And then I started transitioning more towards engineering management in my job function and managing the finances of an engineering facility. And so it's kind of that natural progression. While back then, it was years ago, I had a small blog on investing. That's kind of like where I got a lot of experience with writing and continuing to share what I was researching. I eventually sold that to a larger publisher. That was kind of a hobby blog. And it was in 2016 that I founded Lynn Alden Investment Strategy. Okay. And uh, what is Lynn Alden Investment Strategy? for those that might not be familiar? Basically, it's a more formal research website. So I publish long form articles. A lot of those are about the global economy, macro conditions, things like that. And then I have a newsletter that's free. And then I also have a, a low cost research service that's kind of geared towards that kind of a pretty broad spectrum between high net worth investors, broad retail investors, and that institutional space. And so basically what I try to do is take institutional level research, but then explain it in plain English, which ironically benefits both the institutional investors and that broader retail audience. That's my approach is kind of blending that individual stock analysis with what's happening in the bigger picture in the economy, both in the United States and globally. Yeah. And increasingly over the past year, you've been talking about crypto as well. What are your thoughts on the current crypto market? Are we in a bull market? How long do you think it'll last? Is it different than stuff that has come before? Yeah, so I originally covered uh, the crypto market back in late 2017 after we had that big run up. And so I kind of respond to reader questions. You know, I got a lot of reader questions about that space, even though, I mean, back then, in the broad macro context, that space was still pretty small in terms of market capitalization. But I began covering it in late 2017. And my view at the time was that the technology is very interesting. There's a lot of things to look into here, but that I had two main concerns. One was that the price was parabolic at that point, And so there's a lot of euphoria in the market. And two was that we were seeing, even though any individual cryptocurrency generally has some degree of scarce monetary policy that controls the number of units, anyone can create a new cryptocurrency. And so you can dilute the space by having just tons and tons of cryptocurrencies. That was also when we saw the Bitcoin and Bitcoin cash split. So between those two things, I didn't take a position and I basically said, I'm going to keep watching it, but there's a lot of concerns here. And of course, you know, a couple months later, we had a blow off top and then we had a big crash. We had a multi-year consolidation. It, you know, it underperformed a lot of other asset classes. So it ended up being a good position to kind of step aside. But I kept monitoring the space. And over time, that initial concern about dilution of protocols diminished because, for example, we saw that with the Bitcoin and Bitcoin cash split, that was pretty much decided by the market. So Bitcoin kept most of the market cap, most of the hash rate, more nodes, based on most measures of measuring a network effect. 
that remained a very strong kind of basically a monetary asset. So we still had that, you know, doing well. Ethereum also maintained its market share compared to other smart contract platforms at the current time. And so I just kind of kept watching that space. And as we came into early 2020, we had the big sell-off in assets. We had things bouncing back. I saw that actually the crypto market behaved a lot like precious metals, where when you have a liquidity crisis, there's a basically margin calls are happening, dollars are in short supply. Even things like, you know, ironically, gold can sell off during a down market when you think people would want it. And so you saw gold and silver fall really rapidly. March of last year, you're talking about, right? Yeah, March 2020, exactly. And yeah. so gold fell, silver fell even more, cryptos fell even more than that. So that's actually when I got interested. I said, okay, well, now I'm very bullish. And so I bought in April. We were covering that in my research service. Then I started publishing a series of public articles starting in summer and autumn of 2020. And overall, you know, basically, if you look at the long-term history of the space, Bitcoin has a halving cycle every four years. And so the number of new coins generated every 10 minutes gets cut in half. And that tends to trigger a liquidity issue where if demand is still pretty persistent, but supply gets cut in half, that starts putting upward pressure on the price. And then momentum traders come in and just be kind of continue that trend. More people buy in, demand increases against that reduced supply. And so generally the 18 to 24 months after a Bitcoin halving tends to be bullish, not just for Bitcoin, but also the broader crypto space, because everything kind of jumps on board. People go out the risk curve into, say, start with Ethereum and then also get into the smaller protocols. And so I still remain somewhat bullish here. There's still on-chain indicators that I look at, for example, basically how is the market capitalization compared to the realized market capitalization, which is essentially a measure of cost basis for the protocol. I also look at what's happening with coins flowing to exchanges or from exchanges, are long-term holders buying or selling, basically what is the composition of ownership, things like that. It still looks pretty constructive here, although it's obviously less asymmetric than it was back in 2020 because you've already had very large gains. And so from there, the upside was much better than the downside. Whereas for now, especially you know in some of those riskier protocols, you know I think there's a lot of downside risk, but there's still, as we look out, I still think at least Bitcoin and probably some of the others are still well positioned. Yeah. I'm sure you've seen there's a logarithmic chart of the price of Bitcoin that tracks it over the past 10 years or so. And you see kind of these smile shapes every time there's a halving and uh, sort of culminating in kind of euphoria like we had in 2017, early 2018. Do you have reason to believe that there's technical basis for just this uh, fractal self-similarity? And if so, where do you think we are in that cycle? Yeah, so that logarithmic chart, I've been showing a bunch of those because that, I think, helps people see it in a different way. Because a lot of people look at the linear chart and they see basically a flat line and then it goes vertical in like, you know, recent months and it looks like a bubble. So no one buys in. But if you zoom out and look at that logarithmic chart, you can see that, like you said, a very clear pattern. And so basically you have that combination of the halving cycle and then Metcalf's law. So basically measuring the network effect over time of what happens when more and more people start using it, more and more people start viewing it as either a form of money or a store of value or a speculation, whatever the case may be. And basically, and then also you have the improving technology around it, right? So better wallets, better uh, UI. Basically, in the early days, Bitcoin is very hard to access and buy. It's very hard to self-custody it or have it on exchange that you trust. Obviously, we had a lot of hacks and thefts and things like that. But over time, as it's gotten bigger, it's attracted more attention, more developers. And so that actually improves the use case because when it's easier to use, then more people can use it. And then the big thing we saw is that over the past, say, three years, we saw institutional custody solutions. So places like Fidelity or NYDIG have basically built these platforms that can have 
institutional levels of funds flow into it and secure that asset for them. And so based on most metrics, if you look at, say, how Bitcoin does from its halving point up to its peak, we're still you know, at a lower multiple than those previous cycles, which is part of the thesis of why there might be still to come. But it's also one of those things you can't assume that every cycle is going to play out like the previous cycle. So you can't be sure that it's going to continue to do what it's previously done. A general rule of thumb is that because it started from such a small base, the bigger it gets, somewhat, you know, the less explosive it can be because it's already a larger asset class. It's kind of the law of large numbers. And so my base case is that every halving cycle would have a smaller percent gain than the previous one. And so that, you know, so far, ironically, I mean, this halving cycle is actually somewhat outperformed the previous halving cycle, but it remains to be seen if that will continue to be the case. So, so far, we're actually above my initial base case for how Bitcoin would perform. When you compare, let's say, Bitcoin to things that have come before cryptocurrency, would you say gold is the closest analog? Yeah, in many ways. So basically, when you look at, say, fiat currencies, you obviously have a money supply that goes up quite a bit. And that can be fine as long as the interest rate is sufficient to compensate you for the gradual or sometimes sudden inflation that happens over time. If you look back in history, for example, the 80s and 90s, you had interest rates that compensated you for inflation and the growth in money supply that was happening. Yeah, double digit percentage interest rates back then, right? Yeah, exactly. So if inflation is 3%, but your treasury yields 6%, like it was in, say, the 90s, that's still pretty good. And the further you go back, yeah, in the 80s, there were very high rates. But if you look back, you know, super long time, there are decades where interest rates don't keep up with inflation. And crypto total market cap just passed one trillion. That was a big milestone, right? So all cryptos in existence now add up to about one tenth of gold. Yeah, and it's actually gone a little further than that. So Bitcoin alone reached a trillion. And then the broader crypto space is, you know, last I checked, it's gotten close to two trillion because you had spikes in Ethereum, you had spikes in a lot of those DeFi protocols. And so there's pretty clear use cases for Bitcoin as at least as a basically a store of value or basically a way that people can have that asset, especially if you look at, say, emerging markets where they don't necessarily have the currency stability that developed markets have. And so we often look at Bitcoin as volatile, but for a lot of people in the world, their own currency is just also volatile, especially when you look at the longer term. So Bitcoin might be more volatile day to day, but over, say, a five-year period, they prefer something that actually has a finite monetary policy that is more stable. We're also seeing pretty explosive use of stable coins so you have basically these units that are backed by dollars or other fiat currencies. They basically benefit from the blockchain, you know, the greater liquidity and flexibility of that asset. And so a lot of those run on Ethereum. But we also see, for example, that as Ethereum fees have gone up, some of those have turned to other blockchains that are cheaper. And so a lot of those can operate on multiple blockchains. Yeah, I think it will just be lower friction and an easier user experience to just take any asset that you have, sell it for dollars even, and just use the dollar as the mechanism for the transaction. And then maybe the merchant on the other side also has the same thing going on. They receive the dollars. You see more and more of these corporations deploying their treasuries into cryptocurrencies, mostly Bitcoin at this point, but then they take it and convert it into whatever asset they want to keep in their treasury in relatively real time. And so the fungibility of these assets and everything being electronic, I think, does make the medium of exchange less relevant. Yeah, I agree. It certainly separates the store of value from the medium of exchange. And all people have to do basically is manage their time horizons. And so basically, if they have short term needs, they obviously want to save it in something that is not going to fluctuate in price much. So that's where you'd have, say, a cash reserve. 
But then the longer you look out and you say, okay, that cash is not keeping up with inflation. So that as you look out multiple years, you want to store the bulk of your assets generally in other things. And so for corporate treasuries, that can include things like Bitcoin. And for people's personal investments, that can include whatever mix they want. That can include their real estate. That can include their stock portfolio. That can include their Bitcoin, things like that. And so basically people are not using cash as that savings vehicle anymore. That can have risks, right? So people can pile into these assets that are more volatile and that works well in a bull market or even like a sideways market. But when you have, say, periods of time with more volatility, the fact that so many investors are in more volatile asset classes on average can be risky. And so basically people do have to still manage their overall risk bucket and make sure that they're kind of willing to deal with that volatility. There's been a popular meme around the internet. You've probably seen it. Money printer go burr. And a lot of people are saying that the reason for the rapid price appreciation in these cryptocurrencies has been a distrust with the US dollar and monetary policy as of late. I mean, you're seeing Coinbase recently embedded a message in the blockchain referencing back to the Genesis block. They embedded, what was it, 1.9 trillion stimulus package that the administration passed, I think as a, an allusion to this. But maybe talk a little bit about that. What's going on with the US dollar now? Is there a problem in your view? Should we be concerned? What do you think? Yeah, so if you look back to the previous recession, the global financial crisis, that was the, kind of the start of this current era of basically creating a lot more currency units than normal. The difference back then, however, was that you saw the Fed balance sheet go up a lot. So basically the monetary base of the economy. The funny thing about money is that it's actually got multiple definitions. It's actually hard to define, say, in the U.S. economy, what is money. And so on one hand, you have base money, which is basically the combination of physical currency in circulation and bank reserves which is basically the commercial banking system has on deposit with the central bank. Then you have broad money. It also includes currency in circulation, but then includes people's checking accounts and savings accounts and other cash equivalents. And so back then, the base money went up very rapidly because the bank system was recapitalized. However, if you looked at broad money, meaning that the money that people actually have to their own name, that didn't really go up at all. That kept on its normal trend line. Because of the there was no helicopter money and stimulus checks, is that the main reason? Exactly. Yeah, you had monetary stimulus, but you had very weak fiscal stimulus. You had things like cash for clunkers, but it wasn't anywhere near the magnitude that we're seeing now. And so people, they lost homes, they lost other assets, they lost incomes. And there's a little bit of compensation there, but it wasn't enough to even maintain the trend, let alone go above trend. Now, what we saw in 2020 was very different, where in addition to increasing the monetary base, they did different forms of helicopter money. So you had stimulus checks, you had unemployment benefits on the federal level for people that lost their jobs. You had a PPP loan to small businesses that largely turned into grants. They were mostly didn't have to be paid back. And then you had kind of selective corporate bailouts or aid to states. And so this was a very large fiscal stimulus, which was quite different than what we saw in the previous crisis. And so broad money supply went up something like 25% year over year last year. And that was the largest percent increase since the 1940s. We're basically, it's a very different era now. Since World War II, right? Yes. Yeah, that's the last time it went up this big. Yeah. And what should we expect to come as a result of that? Does that basically guarantee post-pandemic 25% devaluation of the U.S. dollar? Well, it depends on what you're measuring it against. And so if you compare the dollar to other currencies, 
2020 was a year where the dollar weakened compared to, say, a, a basket of major foreign currencies. And that's largely because their money supply growth was less than yep. the United States. So they did smaller stimulus as a percentage of GDP. Some of them, you know, they still went up, say, 10% year over year in terms of broad money supply, which is still very big. But the United States basically had a sharper devaluation. We made more of our, our money units than they did. And so basically, yes, if you create a lot more money than other countries, you're probably going to have some degree of devaluation. Then also, most currencies devalued against gold last year. Gold's been in some sort of correction more recently, but you know, gold's still much higher than it was three to five years ago. Basically, if you flip that around, currencies have devalued versus gold, more or less, or other fixed assets or scarce assets. We also saw, you know, obviously, cryptocurrencies took market share. But you have to kind of pay attention to the longevity of that outcome. Right now, for example, personal income is way above the trend line because of the transfer payments. But, you know, there's not, for example, currently uh, detailed plans to do another round of that. And some of these aid programs, especially like the unemployment benefits, start wearing off around September. And so there are talks about longer term infrastructure spending. We'll see how that gets like previously, we kind of have to analyze the fact that Senate's closely divided. We'll see how that plays out. But basically, this rate of money supply growth is unlikely to be very persistent, at least in, say, the next year or so. And so that poses risks if the market starts to kind of run out of its basically boost that it's been given. And so that could weigh on different types of risk assets. Going out further, it's basically how much inflation we get will largely depend on how much more fiscal deficit spending that there is. If there's large infrastructure projects and things like that, that could boost nominal GDP and also basically put inflation back above trend for a period of time. Or if they stop now, then you're likely to get these effects last several months and then roll over and start to normalize more and more. Historically, there's a pretty strong correlation between broad money supply growth and consumer price inflation. Although in general, broad money supply growth is higher than inflation because you also have that productivity gain over time. And so some of that translates into real growth, whereas other parts of it do translate into just prices going up because there are tons more currency units compared to the supply of goods and services. Yeah, we haven't seen inflation that high as measured by the consumer price index. You know, it's still hovering below 2%. Why do you think that is, as opposed to back in the 80s, for example, when inflation was quite high, interest rates were high, and the broad money supply was certainly not increasing at the rate anywhere near it's been increasing recently. Yeah, so partly it's because when we had that big spike in money supply last year, people also had restrictions on where they could spend it. They weren't really going on vacations. We had commodity overabundance, right? So there's more oil than people knew what to do with. And so oil prices were low. And generally, commodity input costs are a very big component of inflation. And also rents were coming down because people couldn't pay. Landlords were forced to cut rents. And so when you have that kind of economic shock, it tends to put downward pressure on prices. But then as people got vaccinated, as shutdowns eased, as things start to reopen, and as you start to get supply chain issues from people either not working or other basically changes in, in consumption, now we're getting semiconductor shortages. So that's affecting not only new car prices, because you're basically having a lot of companies unable to make as many cars as they wanted to. You're also seeing used cars go up in price. That basically trickles out. You have shipping prices have gotten very large because there's only so much containers and container ships around. We also had that Suez Canal blockage, but that was more of an ephemeral thing. So basically, as we look out into 2021, things do look more inflationary than they looked in 2020 because you have that money supply is still there, but economic activity can return more to normal. 
So the March numbers of consumer price inflation, they actually did touch 2.6% year over year because you're comparing to a, a pretty easy month of March 2020 because that was when the pandemic happened. And then as we get into April and May, which are reported in, in May and June, you're also comparing to low base effects, but you also have that fiscal stimulus and that reopening. And so some of these headline numbers, are, we're probably going to see CPI over 3% during these reports. And then the big question from there is how persistent will that be if fiscal stimulus starts to kind of die down? Yeah, yeah. Oh, very interesting. You wrote this really interesting piece back in December of 2020 about the fraying of the petrodollar system. And yeah, I'd love to ask you a little bit about that. I think in the piece, you made the argument, as I understand it, that the U.S. dollar, which is currently the world reserve currency, perhaps doesn't benefit as much from the status of being the reserve currency as we might think. Because you, you think, oh, reserve currency is basically this kind of unassailable position. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, happy to. And as you point out, it's easy to assume that having the reserve currency is a good thing. And there are certain periods of time where it can be but then it can shift over time and actually become a problem for the host country. And so if you look back at the history of the global monetary system, prior to 1944, a lot of countries were on gold standards. They basically, their central bank would hold gold. They'd issue currencies that are backed by that gold by some percentage, and that's how it would function. In 1944, as World War II was winding down, the United States had a ton of gold. A lot of countries even shipped their gold to the United States for safekeeping in case they got invaded or basically lost parts of the war. Uh, and so the United States emerged as the global superpower. They had a ton of gold. And so they did a system called the Bretton Woods system where the United States dollar backs itself by gold and then other currencies peg themselves to the dollar. And then that's the regime that we operated on from that, the 40s up until 1971. And the big downside of that system was that the number of dollars in the system were still increasing and treasuries, basically government debt was increasing. So foreigners had these treasuries, they had these dollars, and they were still redeemable for gold by international creditors. And so U.S. gold reserves started to decline over time, even as the number of dollars in the system kept growing. And the U.S. confiscated the citizens' gold, the American citizens, to try to help with that, right? Uh, yeah, that was before then. So they confiscated it back in the 30s. And that's part of why they had so much gold in the first place as they entered the 40s. They basically got as many gold reserves as they could, but it's inherently finite. And so they weren't really still accumulating gold. And so they were drawing down their gold reserves as creditors basically demanded the gold. And so basically they weren't able to keep backing it at the same rate that they were. And so eventually that was a flaw in the system. And in 1971, that system ended and the dollar is no longer backed by gold and all currencies became fiat currencies. They all became free floating exchange rates. The way that they salvaged that system was that in the early 70s, the United States made deals with countries like Saudi Arabia to only price their oil in dollars. And so even if Saudi Arabia sells oil to Japan or France, they only sell it in dollars, even though it's neither of their currencies. In exchange for that, the United States would provide military protection and trade deals and things like that. So they basically used their power to implicitly back the dollar by oil, essentially. And so every country in the world needs dollars if they want to buy oil. And so they can either exchange some of their currency to get dollars, or they can start selling some of their own products and services globally in dollars. And so basically that's where we've had this kind of second round of 50 years now of the dollar being the global reserve currency. And at first, I mean, that's a very powerful thing. Basically, it gives the host country the ability to print money for oil and other scarce assets. And especially, you know, during the Cold War 
And so that was kind of this where the United States wanted as much reach as it could have in the global scene. Now, the issue came as you got into the 90s and the 2000s. The downside of maintaining that system is that if the whole world has demand for the dollar and the whole world needs dollars, they basically boost the purchasing power of the dollar, which sounds good. We basically, we, we have more purchasing power. We can buy goods cheaply. That's actually really bad for U.S. exports. That means, for example, if you make a car in the United States, it's less competitive priced globally compared to cars made in Japan or cars made in Germany or cars made elsewhere. Why is that? Can you explain that a little bit more? Because basically, if Americans are paid in dollars, so the labor costs are high, if the dollar is very strong, so the whole supply chain is expensive. And so if you're, say, an emerging market, your currency is weak compared to the dollar, it can be very hard to buy things from developed countries. Those products are very expensive to them, and our labor is expensive. And so we basically propped up the strength of the dollar, which is great for consumption, but it's bad for manufacturing. And so that partially led to a split in society where if you work with information, if you work in healthcare, technology, government, writing, basically, if you're not relying on making physical things, then you mostly benefit from the system. Your currency's strong and you didn't lose your job from it. However, if you work more in the blue collar space, the United States used to be an industrial powerhouse. But over time, that became less and less competitive because of how the dollar was structured. And so if you look at the United States trade balance, Prior to the 70s, we generally had a surplus. We would sell more products to the world than we would import. But ever since the 70s, we started to have explosive trade deficits. And then this really accelerated in the 90s with globalization, free trade agreements, things like that. And what you generally see is that a lot of this was captured by emerging markets where places like China and Mexico would become major manufacturing hubs. But at the same time, you didn't really see that happen to places like Japan and Germany. So it wasn't necessarily that all developed countries sent their supply chains to emerging markets. The United States did it much more rapidly than those other nations because we were the ones that structured our reserve currency in such a way that everybody needs it. And so we had basically a more overvalued currency than Germany and Japan, and therefore it was harder for us to manufacture things. And this persisted for several decades, but over time that starts causing fractures in society. That starts causing things like wealth concentration that causes a lot of the workforce to have trouble finding jobs, especially jobs that pay well, because that foreign competition can push down wages. Then you also have things like automation. And so it's a very challenging situation where on one hand, by having the global reserve currency, we have a lot of global reach, but we also hollow out our you know domestic manufacturing sector. And as we saw, for example, in the pandemic, that could be an issue when you realize that most of your medicine components are made in China. Most of your you know, ventilators are made elsewhere. Masks are made everywhere else. Basically, it becomes a national security issue if that hollowing out happens long enough and thoroughly enough, in addition to people not having the jobs that they need to be self-sufficient. And so we've also seen, for example, the way that system worked for a while was we'd run these trade deficits and foreign countries would then take those dollars and reinvest them back into, say, U.S. treasuries. So that was kind of a symbiotic relationship that persisted for decades. However, in the past seven to eight years, generally those countries stopped reinvesting heavily into treasuries. And so, for example, China would run its big trade surpluses. They would take all these dollars, but they said, you know what? It's not really in our interest anymore to keep buying treasuries. So we're going to go ahead and we're going to lend dollar loans to other emerging markets and basically have mineral rights. We're going to basically build infrastructure. We're going to develop commodity places. And so basically they started reinvesting their dollars into hard assets globally instead of reinvesting them back into treasuries. That's basically been an issue where in many ways the global reserve currency is no longer really benefiting the United States anymore. It's basically forcing us to have trade deficits. We're not really getting a lot out of it. 
there's kind of a small percentage of us that are still benefiting greatly from the system because we've had the benefits without the downsides, but for an increasingly large percentage of the population, they're facing a lot of the brunt of the downsides of having that system in place. Lynn, if you had one takeaway for a retail investor that's listening to this conversation about something to think about as you're building your portfolio, what do you think that would be? I would say that in general, things that work well for one decade are rarely the same things that work the best for the next decade. For example, in the 1980s, we saw Japanese equities do extraordinarily well, but by the end of the decade, they were very expensive. That outperformance gap could not continue. Then in the 90s, you had the rise of the dot-com era. So you had U.S. equities do very well. You had European equities do very well. Then eventually they became all very overvalued. And then in the 2000s, when you had a weakening dollar, you had a commodity boom. You had emerging markets do very well. That was a period of those asset markets doing phenomenally well. But then in 2007, emerging markets became very overvalued in terms of, say, cyclically adjusted price-to-earnings ratios and things like that. And so then they entered a period of poor performance. The 2010s, you had U.S. equity performance do very well. Uh, and so a lot of people have kind of said, why do I even want foreign equity exposure? Why don't I just only buy the S&P 500? So the risk of that approach is that it could still do well in the 2020s. But basically, if you look at comparative valuations, and if you look at how these things tend to shift over time, there's a decent chance that the S&P 500 won't be the best thing to invest in during that decade like it was in the 2010s. So investors should just kind of realize that trailing five or 10 year returns are not necessarily indicative of forward five to 10 year returns. Yeah, very helpful. Okay, well, I'll close with one question, one last question. This has been a really great, very deep conversation. Robinhood's mission is democratizing finance for all. I'm sure you have thoughts on that. I'd love to hear what democratizing finance for all means to you. I think it's mainly about having multiple investors being able to buy assets cheaply. I remember back when I made my first stock trade back in the early 2000s, I had to pay $15 to make that trade. That obviously fell over time. And then as we've in recent periods, now we have free trading or close to free trading. And so I think the main thing is keeping costs low for consumers so they have access to different asset classes without paying very high fees where possible. And it's also about transparency, making sure they understand how that funding mechanism works so that they know what the risks are, they know who the counterparties are, things like that. But overall, it's basically about making assets accessible to people. And so that's what we've seen a lot of in recent years. There are risks where people can get over-enthused about certain asset classes, but as long as people manage risk well, low commissions and basically ease of access can be a good thing. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much for your time. It was fun catching up again. Yep, you too. This has been an episode of Under the Hood. Under the Hood is produced by Sound Made Public. Original music by Eric Zeeler and Blue Dot Sessions. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to Under the Hood on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be well. The opinions expressed are those of the guest speaker and not necessarily those of Robinhood or its affiliates. The podcast is provided for informational purposes and is not investment advice or recommendation of any security or investment strategy. All investments involve risk and loss of principal is possible. Robinhood is not affiliated with the guests or their companies. Robinhood Financial LLC member SIPC is a registered broker dealer. Robinhood Securities LLC member SIPC provides brokerage clearing services. Robinhood Crypto LLC provides cryptocurrency trading. All are subsidiaries of Robinhood Markets Inc., which is also the distributor of this podcast.